Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for all the ways you have led us and protected us and provided for us this past week to lead us right back to your house once again. To think over how you have moved and worked in our lives this past week, to praise you, and to look forward to how you're going to use us in this upcoming week. We thank you that your plan encompasses all of human history, includes us, and that there will be a day when you will come back for us. We look forward to that with great anticipation. We thank you for your word that reveals so much truth to us about this life, about what we can't see, and about what we have in the future. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're now on the other side of Thanksgiving and already full swing into the Christmas season. Many will have family gatherings during these holidays, and many know that some family gatherings are not as Norman Rockwell would have painted them, unless he liked painting pictures of people arguing. You might think you have some dysfunction in your family, but I would wager that nothing has gotten to the level of what has been called the War of Two Brothers, described in a popular science site. In 1527, the king of the Incan Empire, Huaynacapac, died, leaving his two sons, Atahualpa and Huascar, as co-heir rulers of the kingdom. This seemed like a good idea at first, but it didn't work out for very long. Two years later, a civil war broke out between the two brothers, and things got escalated and escalated more and more and got more and more personal as the war went on. At one point, Atahualpa made a drinking cup out of the skull of one of Huascar's generals. Yikes, am I right? Talk about escalation. This civil war would last for three years and would end up being the downfall of the entire Incan civilization. Just as Atahualpa was declaring the victory in this war over his brother, Francisco Pizarro's Spanish conquistadors showed up out of nowhere and conquered everything, conquered the entire weakened kingdom. Pizarro captured Atahualpa and held him for ransom, but was not able to stop him from getting out one last order for those who survived to kill his brother. Atahualpa's order was carried out, but Atahualpa didn't last much longer, being executed himself about a year later. Talk about a dysfunctional family, right? In our passage this morning, there are several family references made with people acting dysfunctionally according to which father they were claiming familial ties to. What does that say to us about our relationship with who we claim to be our spiritual father? Are we promoting a dysfunctional relationship with our Heavenly Father and the family of God, or one that lines up with what truly loving Him really looks like? As we continue with Jesus' conversation in the temple, still on the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles, first with the Pharisees and their challenges to His authenticity and authority as the Messiah, and now with the common people who first start out listening to Him. 
As we'll see as this conversation goes on, however, the people become increasingly more and more antagonistic towards Jesus. We see this antagonism begin with what we talked about last week, where those who had been giving Jesus the time of day start getting their dander up at the possibility that Jesus said they weren't free. They didn't understand what kind of freedom Jesus was talking about. Like with most every other understanding, they took what Jesus said in a physical way and in a religious way, when Jesus meant it to be spiritual freedom. In the people's minds, they thought, well, we're not technically enslaved to anyone. We're Abraham's descendants, and we're doing what we're supposed to be doing religiously. Jesus' response from last week was, no, you're not. Just trying to follow the law does not free you from the curse and enslavement to sin. The only way for you to gain freedom from the enslavement to sin, along with the second death or condemnation to eternal hell that goes along with that, is to take the Son of God for all He is and claims to be. The first step to taking Jesus for all he is, is to repent of that sin in the first place. And we talked extensively about what all of that means last week. Jesus then calls the people out for who they're really serving. He is listening to and serving the true Heavenly Father. Since the people are clearly not listening to the Heavenly Father, even going so far as to wanting to murder Jesus, Jesus calls it for what it really is. They don't have the Heavenly Father as their father. They have the father of lies, or Satan himself as their father. We talked last week about how if one is not actively seeking God the Father based on Jesus' death and resurrection on their behalf with the indwelling Holy Spirit, including what God's Word says, then the only one he or she can be listening to is the father of lies and the lies of this world. It's that simple. That's why it's so important to know God's word, treat it as accurately as possible, and make it who we are. In direct connection and contrast with Jesus' reference to him referencing the Heavenly Father, he's clearly referencing Satan as the father of lies and the one the people are listening to. But the people respond in another challenging way. That's what brings us to our passage this morning. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 8. We're going to be picking up in verse 39. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 8. It's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, ask a neighbor. There's no shame in that. Look it up in the table of contents. I just want us all to find it together or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 8 verse 39 says this. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. The people see what Jesus is saying. But according to one biblical scholar, they counter Jesus' statements by claiming that their spiritual father is not Satan, but Abraham. Jesus is not affirming that Abraham is on the same level as the Heavenly Father, but similar to other conversations, he's using their argument against them. He says, if Abraham really is your spiritual father, as you claim he is, then do what Abraham did. 
We know that Abraham wasn't perfect. We know he disobeyed God when it came to taking matters into his own hands and trying to force God's promise to happen in the only way he could see it happening. But at least Abraham didn't murder anyone in cold blood. Even when he almost killed his son Isaac upon the altar, he was only obeying what God had commanded him to do, knowing that even if God did allow him to follow through with it, God would then raise him back from the dead. It wasn't cold-blooded murder out of resentment or anger. That's what Jesus gets at when he says next in verse 40, But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man has done nothing but tell you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. According to Jesus, all the people could do is murder him because he was simply telling them the truth. The people didn't think that's what they wanted to do, but that was Jesus pointing out to them that that's what they, in reality, truly wanted to do. By their own logic, the people's thinking was contradicting what they were claiming. Abraham, a pagan moon worshiper, had believed in the one true God when God visited him and given up everything about who he had been, his identity, his homeland, and his inheritance to go to a land that God hadn't even shown him where it was yet. That was faith. I wonder how many of us would do that. If God showed up and said, I want you to drop everything, forsake your entire family, move out of your house, and go somewhere, I'm not even going to tell you where you're going yet. How, want, how many of us want to sign up for that? I don't think too many of us would do that. That was faith. If you want to talk about faith, that was faith. Abraham took the son, more than that, Abraham took the son that God had promised to him and followed through all the way up to the point of sacrificing him just as God had commanded him. God called out the very last second, don't do it, and he stopped at the very last second. But that was faith. What were the people talking to Jesus on this day showing? Nowhere near that. What they were showing was not faith at all. What they were showing was humanity, fleshly desire. If they were truly listening to God as their heavenly father, just as the one they claimed their father had done, Abraham, they would see that Jesus was telling the truth. But they didn't think they needed freedom. They didn't think they needed forgiveness. They didn't think they needed a deliverer from their sin. They thought they were good enough on their own, especially because they had Abraham as both their physical and spiritual father, and nothing more needed to be done. All of these beliefs, in reality, were lies fed to them by the father of lies. So Jesus follows this up with the first part of verse 41. You are doing the deeds of your father. And notice it's, Lowercase f here. Again, he's referring to the father of lies. Remaining blind to Jesus as the truth and his words as the truth and rather wanting to kill Jesus instead was a direct movement by Satan. It's obvious. All Satan had been trying to do for millennia was to corrupt the bloodline of the Messiah, prevent him from being born, and kill him since then. It all began at the tempting to get the first two humans to sin and die. 
When that didn't work, some within the demonic hierarchy tried corrupting the bloodlines of the kings of the earth, those through whom the demonic realm believed the king of kings must come from, creating the Nephilim and their demonic influence. When that didn't work, Satan tried to destroy God's people time and time again, convincing the Egyptians to enslave them, the Pharaoh to issue an edict to kill all the Israelite male babies, and then trying to destroy them on the shores of the Red Sea. When that didn't work, Satan tried to destroy God's people through oppressive Canaanite people groups and intermarrying with them, all the way up through the Babylonian exile and the attempt to, uh, by demonic Haman to destroy them in Persia. When that didn't work, Satan tried getting rulers in the area to prevent the returning Jewish, Jewish people from rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. When that didn't work, Satan used the Greeks to conquer and oppress the Jewish people, almost destroying them with a command that they worship the Greek gods or die. Then, when that didn't work, and Satan found out that the Messiah had been born, he tried to destroy him by influencing Herod to kill all the male babies around the greater Jerusalem vicinity. When that didn't work, Satan himself went and tried to get the Messiah to sin through his direct temptation of him. When that didn't work, he continually influenced the religious leaders and common people to kill Jesus before God's intended plan for salvation through it. And that's what Jesus is calling the people he's talking to out for. You think you're behaving righteously, even claiming to be acting in accordance with Abraham. But all you're really doing is being complicit in what Satan has been trying to do for millennia. You're not acting righteously and listening to Abraham. You're listening and acting in accordance with who you're simply proving your spiritual father actually is. The father of lies and the father of death. Again, the people were thinking in a physical, human, and finite way. And even though they, were, they thought they were acting righteously... And how God wanted them to act and getting rid of this guy who the Pharisees obviously had a problem with. But really what was happening here is that they were being pawns in an age-old spiritual war. And there are many today who think they're Christians and think they're acting, believing, and behaving how God would want them to. But because they're not basing their beliefs and actions on God's word, they're really just being pawns in this same old spiritual war. If Satan can get people to believe and act contrary to what is already clearly laid out in God's word, whether it's that God's word and its prescription for righteous living is not relevant to today's social and cultural views, or that Jesus only preached love with no standards for righteous living according to God's moral law, or that aspects of God's word are written in error, and fully believing their believing and acting the way God would want them to are really being pawns of Satan in this same age-old spiritual war of destroying and diluting God's messianic plan for humanity. It's blunt, but it's true. 
Jesus has already placed a huge emphasis on the relationship between seeking and accurately understanding God's word and remaining a true disciple of his. You simply can't have one without the other. And any belief contrary to that is simply listening to the same father of lies the people Jesus was talking to in the temple 2,000 years ago were. But just as those who fully believe they're believing and acting in a way Jesus would want them to, even and especially when those beliefs and actions go contrary to get God's word, when, th when they believe that and they act that way and they'll get all riled up when you tell them that, this is the same exact response that the people give to Jesus. We, not you, have the truth, they essentially say. Our Father is God. And when I read this and studied this and discovered what these people may have also been throwing at Jesus, I thought, are you serious? This, you actually said this to Jesus? But when it comes to people being antagonistic and even downright blasphemous towards Jesus, their level of disrespect and dishonor towards him knows no bounds. Here, it's this veiled accusation from the people. Second part of verse 41. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Scholars debate this. But this could very well be the people making a defamatory comment about Jesus' conception and birth. By this point, especially as Jesus' fame has spread throughout Palestine, it has probably come out that since Jesus' conception and birth was shrouded in mystery, but that Jesus' parents weren't married at the time of his conception, that he was conceived in fornication. You like how low these people are willing to stoop? Obviously, we know that every life is precious to God, no matter the circumstances surrounding his or her conception. And to use someone's conception circumstances as a derogatory statement akin to, well, at least we weren't conceived in fornication, is unbelievably low. Later, rabbis would go so far as to teach that Mary actually slept with a Roman soldier and that not only was Jesus' conception in fornication in that way, but that Jesus wasn't actually full-blooded Jewish and a child of the hated Romans. Again, the level that people who simply don't want to accept Jesus for all of who he is to stoop to is astounding. It takes your breath away, the level that they'll stoop to. But Jesus takes this latest antagonism towards him and calmly redirects the people to the fact that if they were truly listening to God the Father, they would listen to him. And not only listen to him, but put all of their faith into him. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. If the people truly loved and listened to God the Father, as they claim, then they could come to no other conclusion that Jesus is God and everything he's claimed is God's truth. In response to the people's derogatory statement, Jesus points out that originally he came from the Trinitarian relationship with God. 
We read elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus' human origin came by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit over Mary and the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, being conceived as God taking on human flesh. In fact, Jesus had no natural human father. And Mary was physically a virgin, even until after Jesus was born. Especially pertinent to the Christmas season we're now in, we read in Matthew 1.18, Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Jesus has already been conceived within Mary before she and Joseph were married and could have a sexual relationship. And Mary remained a virgin even until Jesus was born. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he named him Jesus. Now why is this important? The people are the ones who brought it up to Jesus, and Jesus reiterates his heavenly origin. Why does Matthew make a point of writing it down by way of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has no, had no human natural father, and that his mother remained a virgin until Jesus' birth? Believe it or not, it has a crucial theological understanding. Like we looked at last week, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5 that it was through the man, Adam, that sin spread to the rest of humankind. Even though Eve was technically the one who sinned first and who gave birth to the next generation of humans, it wasn't through her that sin spread to humankind. So how does sin get passed on from one generation to the next? Well, if we take the example of Adam, it's through the human fathers from one generation to the next. And the Federalist theological view of the origin of the soul, which I find to be the most biblical, teaches that each human soul also originates from the human father at the moment of conception. There isn't some storehouse of souls up in heaven that God places into a fetus at a certain point. At the very moment of conception, the soul originates within that person coming from the Father. So why is this important? It's important because firstly, it gives the origin of the soul. And that when a child is conceived, at the moment of conception, that child has a soul. It's not a collection of cells. It's not a fetus. At the exact moment of conception, that is a human and a human with a soul. For humans, that soul coming from the Father is also corrupted by sin from the Father as simply being perpetuated in humanity. But what did Jesus not have? He didn't have a natural Father. So what was not passed on to him? The sin that came with it. His spiritual state, which is really deity, was given by the Holy Spirit, and he put on human flesh within his human mother's womb. So in this clearly biblical way, Jesus originated from the Father in heaven, which he says in the verse we just read, verse 42, took on human flesh, but did not inherit the sin that came with humanity. 
This is the only way he could be that sinless and perfect sacrifice for our sins. So this often sang about, but perhaps little contemplated piece of theology that Mary was a virgin and was a virgin until after Jesus was born is actually very important to our salvation. In verse 42, as pointed out by one biblical scholar, Jesus also introduces a new concept for how people should see him. Brand new concept. In John 5, Jesus talked about honoring him as the people honored the Father. In John 6, Jesus talked about God the Father has given him the right to judge souls and the authority to give the gift of eternal life. In both John 6 and 7, Jesus talked about God the Father sending him and that if the people wanted to seek God the Father, they had to seek him. In John 8, Jesus talked about the inextricable and perfect relationship between him as God the Son and God the Father. But here in verse 42, Jesus introduces a new concept. That new concept is this. If God the Father is really your heavenly Father, then you would love Jesus as having been sent from him. This is the first time Jesus brings this up in this gospel. Jesus says that he didn't even become conceived as the God-man based on his own initiative. It was all the Father's plan. And as such, if one truly took God as their father, they would also love Jesus because of that. How the people have been responding to Jesus has certainly not been loving. It hasn't even been commonly decent. If we take God as our father only because of Jesus paying for our sins by his death and resurrection, how much do we love Jesus? How much do we love Jesus with our time? How much do we love spending time with him in prayer and in digging into his word? How much do we love Jesus by joining together regularly with the other members of his body, the church? How much do we love Jesus with how we use our finances, which are really his to begin with? Loving Jesus can have an emotional aspect to it, but that's not the emphasis. We can't sing praises and have this emotional and experience, spiritual experience with him and then refuse to love Jesus with the way we live our lives. It's like saying to a loved one, I love you over and over and over again, but yet the way you spend your time, the way you treat them, and how you live towards them is entirely opposite. Love in the Bible is always a working, is always a working and is always a serving love. Jesus later on says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not if you love me, you'll have some spiritual experience with me on a Sunday morning and that's where it ends. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we want to love Jesus... We have to live the way God's word tells us to live. If we love Jesus, we have to be in his word and actually know what his commandments are. If we love Jesus, we then actually have to make what changes we need to in order to follow those, those commandments. If we love Jesus, we'll make sure our sexual relationships are following the blueprint he established at creation. 
only within marriage and only between one man and one woman. If we love Jesus, we'll fill our minds with what he wants us to fill our minds with. If we love Jesus, we'll remember what he said about our Heavenly Father taking care of our every need and not worrying about or fearing anything. If we love Jesus, we'll love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. If we love Jesus, we'll show his love towards everyone, regardless of who they are, while also holding to his moral standards and his word. If we love Jesus, we'll make him first in our lives, no matter what else is distracting us. If we love Jesus, we'll make a strong effort every day to raise our families to love him and his word. If we love Jesus, we'll love and respect our spouses the way Jesus loves us and sacrificed himself for us. If we love Jesus, we'll show each day more and more love for him and less and less love for ourselves, our dreams, our desires, and our addictions. If we love Jesus, we'll hold his standards and commandments above all else we want get rid of certain things, and bring everything in line with those standards and commandments. And as Jesus says here in verse 42, if we show our love for Jesus in the everyday way we live our lives, we'll show who is really our Father. Are we showing that our Father is the Father of lies by the way that we live our lives? Or are we showing that our Father is truly the Heavenly Father? Are we showing that we're believing the lies put forth by the world? Or are we believing what God the Father has already revealed in his word? And as such, are we loving Jesus with all of our lives? The Apostle John will go on to write in 1 John that we only even know what the concept of love is because God first loved us. It's not our definition or standard of love or what love is. It's God's. Love is who God is. So it's up to him as to what the standards, expectations, and definition of love is. To love Jesus is to love him the way God first loved us in his definition of love. 1 John 2, 3, 6 says this, By this we know that we have come to know him. Here it is again. If we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is what? A liar. Just emulating the father of lies. And the truth is not in him. But whoever follows his word, in him or her, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Very simple test. Are we seeking to follow his commandments? Are we seeking to follow his word? Then we know that we are in him because the Holy Spirit is growing that fruit in us. The one who says that he remains in him ought himself also walk just as he walked. It's not enough just to say we love Jesus. It's not enough to just have a spiritual experience on a Sunday morning. We have to show God, show Jesus that we love him 
by the way that we live our lives, by the way that we follow his commandments, by the way, by the way that we walk in his word. Jesus said, if you want to show that you are truly my disciple, continue, remain in my word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this continuing conversation with these people that Jesus is having in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles that will just continue to get more and more antagonistic. We thank you for what it reveals to us as your followers and as your disciples. I think all of us were hit a little bit with some of these uh, things taken out of your word, convicted a little bit by your Holy Spirit. This is one of those um, heart change sermons uh, that I pray that we would all be sensitive to your, whole, to your Holy Spirit's leading, to bring in line with your word uh, what we may, have, may be continuing to hold on for years uh, away from you. But Lord, I pray that we would get that right with you today, that we would show how much we love you by getting all of these things right with you today. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me.